Hello and welcome to Security by the Book, a monthly podcast series from the Hoover Institution's Working Group on National Security, Technology, and Law. In this episode, Task Force Co-Chair and Brookings Institution Senior Fellow Ben Wittes, along with Samuel Tadros, a Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, interview Graham Wood about his book, The Way of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State. It was recorded on March 28, 2017. My name is Ben Wittes. I'm the uh, co-chair of the Working Group on Technology, National Security, and Law. In my other life, I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and, I'm, and I run Lawfare, which partners with, with, with Hoover on these uh, events. Uh, for those of you who uh, have been to these uh, before, I, I just want to give you a, uh, a little heads up. We're going to do this one a little bit differently, which is that uh, neither I nor Jack Goldsmith is going to be conducting the interview. And the reason for that uh, is that when I reached out to Graham uh, to, to come talk about his book, uh, the, uh, the Way of the Stranger, um, he uh, informed me that uh, Sam Tadros had already reached out to him and invited him to, to Hoover to come talk about his book. And so uh, it, it is an example of the one arm not knowing what the other arm is doing. So we decided just to join forces. And uh, so uh, Sam is, is uh, going to be our guest host of the what, what we at Lawfare call the Hoover Book Soirees and what Hoover calls Security by the Book. Uh, as always, uh, this event will be podcasted on Lawfare. Uh, and as always with the Security by the Book events, uh, we don't take audience questions in the interview itself because of the podcast. I know last time, for those of you here last time, that really upset somebody. Uh, I want to say, sorry, not sorry. That's the way the event works. Uh, and you are all, of course, invited after the, um, after the interview uh, segment to uh, talk to the author, ask your questions, and uh, have him sign books. Uh, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Sam and to Graham Wood, who, uh, let me just introduce them both very briefly. Uh, so Sam is a uh, distinguished visiting fellow at Hoover and a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. And he teaches as well at SICE. And Graham Wood, uh, this is a really a remarkable book. And I, I, this is the only thing I'll say about the book. I, I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. And I was very excited that Graham is coming here tonight. Um, so a national correspondent, is that your title, at The Atlantic? And I believe he also teaches it in the Yale Political Science Department. Uh, so with that, I will turn it over to Sam. And uh, thank you all for coming. Well, thank you, Ben, for this uh, introduction and for the opportunity to uh, organize this event together. Um, we're here to discuss a fascinating book. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. It's, a, it's an excellent look that um, takes us to a, into a deep journey to the world of the Islamic State not just in the battlefields of Iraq and Syria, uh, not just with the affiliates in um, the Philippines. It's a journey that takes the author uh, to Japan to meet the Islamic State supporter there, Australia, um, the United States to meet one of the key theoreticians for the group in America, um, to the United Kingdom, to Norway, to Egypt, my home country. Latin America seems to be the only place that uh, the Islamic State so far hasn't forced you to go to, uh, to search for its, uh, its supporters. None of the frequent flyer programs that I participate in has <laughs> any route that goes to any of the places there. So okay. that, that's the only reason. Well, although you do mention in the book there's a potential, maybe in the future, for the Islamic State there. But we'll get to, to, uh, to the future of the Islamic State later. Um, I think the, the best way to, to, is to basically start by uh, asking you what brought you to this book. Why write about the Islamic State? What made you interested in this subject? Well, uh, first of all, very, I'm very grateful for uh, not one but two invitations to speak here and therefore doubly honored by that. Um, so the, the origin of this book, uh, in, in some ways, it, it, uh, I started writing it 
in the same moment of confusion that I think a lot of people shared when the Islamic State took the city of Mosul, started explaining itself uh, in its propaganda, and in ways that, that were kind of illegible to, to, to many, um, many people who were reading about it in the newspaper, who were, who were perhaps getting a, a glimpse of its magazine, Dabik, and then finding that, that the claims that it was making, the, the, the nature of, of the Islamic State, was mysterious. And what I found was that it was in some ways confusing, but in some ways it echoed some of the things that I had heard from jihadists, from Islamists I had spoken to previously. So my efforts was, what I really wanted to do was to produce something that would explain the origins of the ideas of the Islamic State, and to do that in a way that would uh, also illuminate the psychology, the characters of the people who were attracted to it. So I, I wanted to produce something sort of like a, an Islamic State or Islamist version of To the Finland Station, where it would show historically where these ideas had come from, and the 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 variations on them that were reflected in the Islamic State. So as you say, it, it, it meant that I uh, had to look for people who could speak to one degree or another in the voice of the Islamic State. Um, and to my surprise, these people, they, they walk freely among us. Uh, they are, uh, especially when I started looking for them, that they were in places like Melbourne, like Tokyo, uh, like Oslo, like London. And uh, they had not yet been rolled up by the law enforcement agencies of these countries. So as a journalist, uh, this was, this was a, a shocking availability. You know, during the 2000s, I, well, when, when covering Iraq, the insurgency in Iraq, of course I would love to have had an interview with, say, Abu Musab al-Zakawi. That was not possible at the time. Uh, it was not possible to speak to some of the people who, who were the intellectual leaders or operational leaders of al-Qaeda. Whereas with, with ISIS, because of the kind of radical openness, the radical, um, uh, the, the, the way that it had, had, had tried to pull people in from many different places, that meant there were voices out there of people who, who were officially, in some cases, usually unofficially, essentially spokesmen for the group. And so that, that's what the book is, is my going to these spokesmen mm -hmm. and asking them the most naive, basic questions, like, who are you? Where have you come from? What do you believe? How did you get so far outside the orbit of normal human behavior and thought? Why are you so weird? Uh, and to my surprise, they were, in most cases, real chatterboxes. They just went on at great length, and they invited me, in some cases, into their lives. So this is an account of those conversations. Well, you, you described the, that you were looking for the origins of the Islamic State and where it came from. And it's, um, of course, we've had a long history of jihadi groups, uh, both locally inside particular countries, FIS in Algeria, the Islamic Jihad and Jama'a Islamiyah in Egypt, and many others, the transnational jihadi movement. But in a sense, the Islamic State is very different. Its appeal, its propaganda, everything about it is different. What makes it so different in a jihadi universe full of many different groups? Um, I think there are a few things. Uh, just in, uh, in the political program that it proposes, the emphasis that it has on a caliphate is shared by some Islamist groups that we could name, but is emphasized, of course, much more strongly. Uh, the emphasis on sectarian difference, especially hatred of the Shia, of Sufis, this is something that, that, again, is shared with some other jihadi groups, but is emphasized much, much more aggressively. The intolerance of the Islamic State uh, in general, I think, is, is something that's been cranked up to a, a notch that's not been seen before. But there's, there's also um, there's something about the... the the, the wide net that the Islamic State has cast that I, I think really differentiates it as well. It has, although ironically it's, it's and paradoxically, it has been very uh, uh, intolerant of different types of Islamic interpretation, but at the same time has tried to say that all Muslims, even ones that disagree with it in some ways, 
are both welcome to join it and obligated to come to it. So it's this strange combination of vicious, violent intolerance and an open-door kind of big tent policy toward Muslims everywhere that has, has made it at, at, at turns different from some groups that have come before. And yet we didn't take it seriously initially. I mean, it took the fall of a major city in Iraq for us to, to finally take it seriously. Uh, the JV team, the, the uh, commonly quoted line from President Obama, why were we so blind in recognizing the danger that the Islamic State would pose very differently from the, the typical danger that we knew from Al-Qaeda? Um, I think I can speak as a journalist, as a member of my profession, I can say that many of us simply took our eyes off the ball. The reporting from, say, Mosul in particular, uh, the last time I was in Mosul was in 2013. Mosul fell in the middle of 2014, and I am not aware of any other journalists that were in Mosul between the time I was there and the time the fall of the, of the city. Mm -hmm. This is incredible. This is a major Iraqi city that for, for, for that extended period, period, well over a year, was not being watched, was not, had no foreign correspondence in it reporting on the softening of the city over time by the Islamic State so that it could be taken by possibly a group of, of 500 fighters in the course of a week or so. So there, there was simply inattention that I think is part of it. There was also um, simply the fact that we were, we were getting used to a, a particular mode of attack that we associated with Al-Qaeda. And we were getting good at stopping it. There had been, as we know, thankfully, no September 11th since September 11th in this country. And so it was, I think... Uh, a kind of, of um, a feeling of comfort that we had learned to deal with this enemy. And I think as a result, a uh, kind of complacency that, that stopped us from seeing that it had changed in a way that, mm -hmm. that truly uh, stood the threat on its head. And it was a different tactic, a different strategy that uh, needed to be uh, met in a, in, in a different way. One of the perhaps most dangerous ideas we encounter in the book, outside of the violence and the bloody, the bloodness of it and all of this, is the idea that the Muslim cannot feel complete, cannot um, live a normal life in a non-Muslim society. The Australian doctor, which you quote, um, says in his letter to the Australian Medical Association, I have finally returned home. Um, a country he had probably never seen, never knew, but, but that was home simply because it was ruled by the banner of Islam as proclaimed by the Islamic State. Of course, this idea is hardly new. Throughout the Middle Ages, we find in the text of the various schools of jurisprudence arguments about not living under the non-Muslims. Sheikh Albani, as you mentioned, had the famous fatwa. Palestinians were obliged to leave the uh, state of Israel so that they are not ruled by non-Muslims. How, how do you deal with such an idea? It's a very dangerous idea that you cannot be a complete Muslim without living under the rule of Sharia. Yeah, so I, I cannot say how, as a Muslim, one deals with that, not being a Muslim. So this is, this is as you say, a conversation that, that has taken place over the course of hundreds of years, what the obligations are of a Muslim uh, in terms of just migration to places where he would be ruled by an Islamic government. And... I think that that really speaks to one of the, the difficulties of dealing with the attraction of the Islamic State. It is not an idea that has been conjured by the Islamic State and its supporters just in the last few years that Muslims have a religious obligation to live on, in, a, in a country that is ruled in some way where, where the religion is reflected in the government. It is something that they can look to in the fatwa of Albani you mentioned, but in a, a, a long discourse about these these obligations. So the, the very fact that when Tarek Kamle, this Australian doctor who had, let's just say, no long personal history of piety or of interest in, in this long juridical discussion, 
the fact that ISIS could point, uh, point to that discussion and say to him, look, historically, Muslims have really been concerned about the, the temptations of living in sinful societies, non-Muslim societies. So if you're a Muslim, don't you want to be part of the tradition that, that, that is part of your patrimony? And for a certain segment of, of society, that's apparently a, a, a very persuasive argument. Almost everyone, by the way, I spoke to who's an Islamic State supporter said some variation of this, that they feel, felt empty inside, somehow unfulfilled. There's, unfortunately, there, there are very few remedies to the, the, the feeling of existential emptiness uh, that can be proposed by outsiders like myself. I mean, it's, it's striking that this uh, sentiment is increasing at a time when the world is becoming more tolerant towards uh, Muslims. I mean, it's understandable that a, a, a sheikh would write something in the 16th century, given the experience of uh, Muslims in Spain under, after the reconquest here and all of that. But it's just more striking the growth of such sentiment compared to the 1960s and 70s when the waves of immigration began from countries in North Africa, from Turkey to Europe. And now it's becoming a, a major theme of alienation. You cannot be a complete Muslim without living under that banner. Yes, it, 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 is, it is ironic that you know, if you ask, I think, most Muslims who are living in non-Muslim countries, they would say, uh, they feel perfectly free to practice their religion, and that's fine. Now, when the Islamic State, again, invokes the, this long discussion of where Muslims are allowed to live, they will look to the, the examples you point to. They look to Ibn Hazm of Cordoba, who, where there was a very clear difficulty of, of moving borders that, that represented the frontiers of Islam, and a real question about where one places oneself as that border shifts. So they've, they've had to look to a point where that distinction is, is seemingly much more applicable uh, in order to have that, that conversation and, and, and articulate that obligation today. There's been a lot of arguments and discussion of the role of the Internet in radicalization in recruitment for the Islamic State. You dismiss that uh, sentiment. You say that recruitment rarely, if ever, happens primarily online. There's always a local guy there, a sheikh, uh, someone that you uh, look up to, and that leads the way that ends with you in the Islamic State. If that's the case, why have we been so unsuccessful in confronting this? How, why weren't we able to pick on these local guys early on and stop the radicalization process? Well, let me just spell out what, why I am, am so dismissive of the social media aspect of this, which it's important, but it's not quite what people think. I, th I think there, there are many people who they have the sense that if you read the wrong tweet, then you start getting pulled in, and next thing you know, you're on kayak, looking for tickets to Turkey, and then despite having never met anyone who has anything positive to say about the Islamic State, social media has, has, has contaminated you irrevocably. And that, that just seems not to happen. Uh, what happens, it, it goes usually more like this. You know someone who went there. That person has individually said to you that this is uh, what you should do too, stresses that obligation, and then the internet is, is a, a way for you to uh, kind of self-educate on these issues after having already been told that it's something that you need to be thinking about. So it, it's, it, it's, not, um, it, it's not an unimportant aspect of the process, but it's not the original contagion in almost any of the cases that, that I've seen or anyone else has tracked. Um, there is one way in which it, it does seem to be very important, though, which is the, the recruitment of women. Uh, it's been much more difficult in the past to recruit conservative women who have been perhaps less ability yeah. to, to leave the house, to meet strangers and so forth. Whereas online, uh, that's, that's been important, which is part of why 15 to 20 percent of the recruits to the Islamic State who have actually traveled have been, have been women. Mm -hmm. Interesting. This appeal of the caliphate, you, you describe it, there was a caliphate of the imagination uh, to which all of these people belonged to long before they actually made the journey and went into Turkey. Of course, the, the 
collapse of the caliphate or the end of the caliphate at the hands of Ataturk created an existential crisis in the world of Islam. Um, immediately afterwards, we had many claimants for the title. The Sharif Hussein of Mecca, the king of Egypt for a while, fancied himself appointing himself the caliph of the Muslims. We had caliphate revivalist movements in Indonesia, in India. But then, in a sense, that appeal died or dwindled. Even early on, immediately after Ataturk abolished it, we had a serious conservative-based criticism of the idea of the need for the caliphate by the Egyptian sheikh Ali Abdelrezi. Why has this appeal returned? What makes the caliphate in particular so appealing to Muslims living all over the world today? That's a great question. So I, I would make one quick observation about ISIS's view of the caliphate, and maybe one comparison that would be helpful to the movements that you just mentioned. They, I, I, think, I think it's fair to say in, in most cases, they were looking back to 1924 and the abolition of the Ottoman caliphate as the, the point where they were picking up. Uh, ISIS, uh, it viewed things a bit differently. Um, there has been some mention in its propaganda of 1924 and the extinction of the caliphate then as being one of the key dates. Um, but often you see them actually looking much further back for the moment of, of last previous caliphal validity. Uh, 1258 is sometimes mentioned, the, the end of the Abbasid Caliphate. So, the, Are you telling me the Egyptian period of the Abbasid Caliphate doesn't count? I'm sorry to, 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 I'm sorry to break it to you. But yes, there was at one point in, in actually in Dabek magazine, it mentioned we have not seen a caliphate since 1258. This is, this is a remarkable claim. Uh, it, it means that most of the people who have historically, you know, if you go to the Wikipedia page and list of caliphs, most of them are apparently not really caliphs, according to the Islamic State. So I think what they, what they have found is that they can try to revive this concept, which has been, uh, in a kind of woolly way, attractive to other groups in the past, in what they consider the most rigorous most uh, intolerant way uh, that they can imagine. So it's, I think they would think of it as a true caliphate, a caliphate with a, in a robust sense that hasn't existed for a long time. And of course, that, that, that flatters their caliphate, obviously. And it, it allows them to say that they are doing something of world historical, you know, universe historical importance. I mean, the, the key thinker of the Islamic State, the Bahraini Sheikh uh, Ben Ali, he's, his comment about um, Baghdadi being only the eighth caliph in the history of Islam is fascinating because then we're going way before 1258 even. We're talking about just uh, seven guys before him who are rightly considered part of this uh, chain of caliphs. Yeah, he, he really attacks uh, yeah. that list with a red pen, crosses them out. One by one. So the, 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 the fellow you mentioned, Turki al-Ben Ali, yeah. Bahraini cleric, who has uh, been one of the more interesting intellectual forces behind the Islamic State, he has a really inventive, uh, curious essay that, that you just mentioned that, that uh, it takes this famous narration of the Prophet saying that there will be 12 imams and, uh, and that's it, and says... Usually Shia are more interested in this, this particular narration, but it, it appears in Sunni uh, collections as well, and says, well, if, if that's the case, uh, how do we deal with the fact that there have been so many alleged caliphs through time? Well, we have to figure out wh who really, really qualifies. If we apply this intolerance that, that we apply to everything else to history, who comes out appearing to, to have fulfilled all the criteria? the criteria of dissent, the criteria of, of um, piety, of uh, application of law. And yes, he, he comes down to there have pretty much just been seven or so. Baghdadi is number eight. And uh, you know, prepare your, your card with four more check boxes before we get to the last one. Despite um, it calling itself the Islamic State, um, 
many of its opponents have refused to call it that. It is neither Islamic nor a state is a, is a borrowed line, of course, from the Roman, Holy Roman Empire, but it's been a constant theme. We refer to them sometimes by a more derogatory term in Arabic, Daesh. There's a, an attempt to always refuse to acknowledge anything related to religious matters there. And yet, as you point out, the Islamic State does not quote Marx or St. Paul in its uh, propaganda. It relies on the Quran, the Sunnah, uh, particular interpretations by particular sheikhs throughout the centuries. Why can't we acknowledge that aspect of religion having an influence there? Well, uh, purely on the issue of nomenclature, um, as I think most of, most of you know, even with the name Daesh, certainly with ISIS, with ISIL, the word Islamic is in there, in the acronym. So it, it, it's, it's really not, it, it's not quite the distancing from the Islamic label that, that some of ISIS's opponents would like. Why is there a, a, a desire to distance? One reason is simply obvious. Nobody who's a Muslim wants to be associated with a group uh, that calls itself Muslim and wants to, they will try to, to strip that label from them. I, I think there's something deeper, though. There's, there's also a reluctance to see um, ISIS as having any intellectual or political genealogy whatsoever. I think there was, especially in the early days of our collective shock at what ISIS was doing, a, um, a, a kind of tendency to see them as wild men, as psychopaths, and this fed in very well, by the way, with a general kind of prejudice against Arabs as barbarians. It fit very well. Oh, well, look, they're cutting off people's heads. They must not have any kind of, of uh, ideology or system of thought to what they're doing. No rationality at all. at all. Yes. And what you find instead, if you take that I in ISIS, the first I in, in ISIS seriously, is that they are, in fact, looking to a contested tradition and this tradition is one that we call the Islamic tradition. They're asking questions that Muslims have asked themselves and come up with you know, many different and incompatible answers uh, over the centuries. So I, I think the, the, the desire both simply to denigrate the movement and to perhaps also just to, and the aspiration that they might be easier to deal with because they're just crazy people, I think both of these uh, fed into the desire to, to, to deny the Islamic nature of, of, of the Islamic State. And of course, where there's also uh, the matter of uh, prejudice and hatreds, and you don't want to allow the, the anti-Islamic sentiment in general uh, to reflect that the Islamic State, if we acknowledge that it has something to do in Islam, others were portrayed as the manifestation of Islam itself. Yes, and that's, that's a regrettable uh, interpretation of what ISIS is doing, to say that, that, that ISIS is the only way to be Islamic. And this, what this really points to, though, the kind of meta-conclusion we can find, is if, if by calling them Islamic, we are saying that they are, it's implied, we understand it to be implied, that they are the right kind of Islamic, then we evidently have a view of Islam that's different from the view that we have of, say, Christianity or Judaism, in that Islam can only be one thing. If we said that a group was Christian, we wouldn't be implying that it was the correct version of Christianity or the only version of Christianity. Uh, so I think we, 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 we rightly would call a crazy Christian group a Christian group and just leave it to our imaginations how diverse this label of Christian can be. The same thing would be, I think, appropriate with the Islamic State. We call it the Islamic State, and at no point by doing so do we say that it is the only version of Islam or the correct version of Islam. Well, it's, it's striking that you brought up the, the difference with Christianity because there's an interesting line there in the book. Um, Islam is not Christianity on a five-century time delay, and its reformation may well take a different shape. 
that's a striking line. We've heard these calls for an Islamic reformation often uh, from intellectuals, Muslims themselves, from people in the West, even from the Egyptian president who's made the call for a religious revolution, one of his uh, best-selling points in the West. You don't have faith that much in, in the possibility or that that reformation would lead to the results people expect? Uh, no. If we're using the word reformation uh, in the same sense that it would be used in the history of Christianity, then then no, we, we would have, uh, except with, with, with rank ignorance of Christian history, we, we should have no expectation that it would be uh, nonviolent. Reformation Christianity was extremely violent. And my, my goodness, the, the number of times in my discussion w discussions with supporters of the Islamic State that they would say things that, that had exact parallels, hermeneutic parallels, historical parallels, political parallels with the Reformation in Christianity, uh, it, it, it ceased to surprise me when they found something new to, uh, to bring up in, in, in that, that, that type of comparison. Mm -hmm. uh, it never comforted me to find that that was the, the historical parallel that was recurring. Because, I mean, millions of Europeans dead. Uh, and the end of that conflict uh, resolved after the exhaustion of a, a continent by violence. W one hopes that there's a shortcut in the, in the, the present-day scenario. But oh. if, if the Islamic State is itself a reformation movement, then it's possible that it could have this, the same kind of, 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 uh, of trajectory. Baghdadi as Martin Luther, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, well, you know... <laughs> or Calvin. One could think of Baghdadi as a Martin Luther, but Martin Luther also found that there were uh, over-enthusiastic yeah. supporters that, that were going crazy and putting people in cages and, and doing things that he, he thought uh, his movement had gotten away from him. Mm -hmm. So I, I think we, we might think of Baghdadi as, as uh, perhaps more akin to the leaders of the Munster Rebellion, say, or, or, or other truly far-out Reformation figures. Yeah. One of the most fascinating uh, things I found in the book, um, Islamism by its very nature and the jihadi world itself is divided often in various competing groups that have more hatred towards each other than they actually sometimes hold towards the rest of the world. Uh, many, if you go on YouTube, many of the sheikhs spend more time criticizing fellow Islamists than they spend criticizing the West. And yet, in the book, we find this one incident where, in Egypt, um, there's an attempt to convert you by a Salafi sheikh there. Uh, he had originally been a tailor in New York, uh, left that life, came to Egypt, became a Salafi sheikh there. And then you're sent to Alexandria, and you discover that part of the group there, working on your conversion, basically, belonged to the Tabligh and Dawa, which is a completely non-Salafi, these guys usually hate each other. Why were they able to cooperate? Can you describe or give us some uh, clues about this uh, dynamic in the world of Islamism between its various components? Uh, so you're right. These are, in some ways, inconsistent groups. I mean, Tablighis are, are, I believe, Deobandi, and they, are, mm -hmm. are, they, they adhere to a, a school of jurisprudence that, that is certainly not the one that's associated with Salafism. So it was odd that someone who viewed himself as a purist, who was, who was teaching other people how to be Salafi, jihadi, jihadi Salafi, that he was sending me to someone who was going to be teaching me the wrong things. Now, I think the, the, the resolution to that, that paradox is purely uh, practical. Uh, he was exhausted with me. <laughs> I, I don't know how tiresome in general I am to be around, but if you spend days and days with someone trying to convert him, uh, eventually you need to tag out and have someone else work on the guy. Uh, and that's what he did. He sent me to Alexandria because he said, there are people there who, who will, uh, will pick up where I've left off. And they won't be the end of your education, but on basic matters, what you need to believe, what books you need to read, they're good enough for now. And I, I think... Th what this shows, too, and this was before the existence of the Islamic State, by the way, but th there was, again, a, a kind of 
impulse toward having a big tent for jihadism or for versions of conservative versions of, of Islam, where ISIS, it, it, it is not a tabligi organization. It would happily accept a tabligi in its midst, possibly viewing that person as uh, deviant or in need of correction. But uh, unlike some others, they, they are very happy to bring in people of many different, different uh, Muslim stripes. Unless you're a Sufi, Shiite, Badi, or any of that, of course. I read one fatwa that was listing the groups that would be acceptable in Islamic State territory under these, these ex express conditions that yeah. you were to be, uh, your, your deviance is to be corrected. And it listed a remarkably wide list of groups. It included Sufis. It included Shia. Uh, I made inquiries and asked, it, it appears you're killing Shia on site. Well, why is it that Shia are are technically permitted. And I was told, well, Zaydis are permitted. And huh. Zaydis are a, a subset of Shia that's sometimes considered a, 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 a Sunni school in itself. Yeah. So, uh, in other words, that they didn't really mean the, the Shia part. But they were casting a wide net of other types of, of, yeah. of uh, Muslim that were acceptable. Because once you get there, we'll take care of the details later. I'm sure the Houthis of Yemen who are Zaydi are really happy with being <laughs> accepted by the Islamic State. Um, a noticeable trend that you describe is the impact of the local on the transnational. All of these guys are Islamists. They're committed to the idea that there is no difference between an Indonesian and an Egyptian except in taqwa, as the hadith by the Prophet proclaims. Um, Yet each of them, their own understanding of the caliphate is basically shaped by their local conditions. The British guy, his understanding on the caliphate is, emphasizes the healthcare aspect of it. This tension, how does the local and the transnational operate, especially when you have this influx of foreign fighters from all over the world onto a Syrian and Iraqi population? Uh, so... You're, you're certainly correct. The Australians I met who, who were supportive of the Islamic State were, uh, were supportive in an Australian way. The Japanese guy who had gone to the Islamic State, he, when I asked him what are the virtues of a caliphate, he listed some very Japanese-sounding things about respect for privacy. And, uh, and yes, the, the, the Brits, they said the National Health Service of the Islamic State is going to be really great. <laughs> this... This is, this is odd, I, and I, I think it, it raises some profound questions, first of all, about how much we can escape our origins. I mean, they were people who were eager to sort of wipe their slates clean and go to a, a place that they themselves would have said is uh, a, a kind of year zero community where everything is, is different. And yet, the things that they were envisioning in this, this caliphate of their imaginations were it was completely uh, um, uh, ordained by the, 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 the places they were coming from. So that, that's part of it. There's also, I think, with, with the Islamic State, uh, there's a, are practical questions that turn out to be very interesting about what it means to have what is essentially a cosmopolitan society within this, uh, this society that then takes everybody in and then launders their... their their cultures and souls, and so they're all they're all one. Um, this is, if, if we go by some of the reports of what the Islamic State actually is like on the ground, has become a very uh, contentious issue. Um, in some ways, when it's successful, one that that appears beautiful to the followers of the group, saying we've come in from all different cultures and we are all now one, and in some ways, uh, a, a source of great annoyance. So you'll find relatively few South Asians who have gone to the Islamic State. Why is that? Some of them have gone there and then come back and reported that they're treated as South Asians are treated when they go to Dubai. Instead of being handed tools of glorious battle like grenades and a Kalashnikov, they're handed a toilet brush or, or a keyboard perhaps to do IT work. So there's, I think, uh, some, some fissures within the group to be exploited where the ideals are not met by the reality. Well, since no one can escape his uh, 
locality, I can't escape mine. I'd have to bring up Egypt in the conversation. Um, Egypt and Cairo, a city that you describe as ill-mannered, the most ill-mannered in the region. How dare you? <laughs> but, but that city, I have to say I completely agree, but uh, that city and that country loom extremely large on the book. We meet two Egyptians, uh, Hisham al-Ashri and Islam Yakan, but also the foreigners, the Australian, the American, the Japanese, the three of them make the journey to Cairo at various occasions, working there for various periods, learning, teaching. Why is Egypt so important and so central to the world of Islamism and jihadism? Uh, for reasons that will be of no, no surprise to you. I mean, there is the, the Egyptian cultural uh, dominance in the Arab world, being first among equals, having the largest Arab population, uh, the center of culture and thought in many different ways. So that, that unsurprisingly, it's going, to be, it's going to have outsized influence on, on the Islamic State. There's also, though, in more uh, recent dynamics, uh, I think, an important influence that, that Egypt had. Uh, after the Tahrir Square revolution, there was a moment of a kind of glide period in, in Egypt where a lot of things could be discussed, could be planned, uh, a lot of communities could be formed that were impossible under Mubarak, impossible probably today as well, uh, and that turned out to be very important in, in the creation of this virtual community that eventually got together in reality and in armed form in, in Syria and Iraq. So you mentioned some of the figures who went to, to Egypt. One of those was the top American in the Islamic State yeah. in my profile, yeah. named John Georgeless or Yahya Abu Hassan. This guy went to Egypt the day after his, his parole expired in the United States for a, for a cyber hacking crime. And uh, once he got there, he was able to just plant himself in Rahab City and have people come to him and, and learn at his feet. Um, it, was, it was sort of like we, we talk about how Syria was, was a safe haven for yeah. Islamist groups. It was an intellectual safe haven where people could find their teachers and get the message out so that once the, the physical haven was, was, was yeah. possible in Syria, then there was already these communities that had been formed, loyalties, and uh, they could just come together in, in reality over there. Throughout the book, you're looking for the, what's the counter message? What can uh, become a counter to the Islamic State? You go and meet um, Salafi background-oriented um, Muslim sheikh in America. You also go and meet Hamza Yusuf, the Sufi uh, sheikh. You describe his arguments that they wouldn't have moved any of the, the Islamic State supporters. What would move these guys? I, I raise this question because, as you know, there's um, been a constant discussion in Washington about using various groups within the world of Islam against the more radical ones. Um, initially, we discussed the Sufis as possible ones. We then had a discussion about quite Salafis. And you bring up these quite Salafis saying that uh, in, this, in some way they are the group best positioned to have an argument with the Islamic State, despite being the ones that are, in a sense, only disagreeing on timing, as you state. What's the way to counter them? Well, first let me state why I thought that Hamza Yusuf, this Sufi sheikh, a tremendously learned guy, mm -hmm. uh, someone who I, I, I would hope um, I would hope would be persuasive, but I, I, I happen to, to doubt that he actually would be, to people who are, are part of the target audience of ISIS. The, the argument that he gave to me was essentially to say, look, I've been studying Islam for 30 years. This is a religion like other great religions, that require time to understand them and to practice them properly. Uh, and implied, if only they would also spend 30 years studying and memorizing Islamic texts in Mauritania, <laughs> in Dubai, then they too would realize this. And you see the obvious problem here. Um, most people do not have 30 years to spend on these, these topics. 
also most ISIS people do not have the attention span that, that, that would make that an attractive proposition in any way whatsoever. So I, I think it, it's, it's, it's unfortunate, but that there's, there's no way, there's no shortcut in time and there's no shortcut in, in the, the kind of personality types of ISIS that would, would allow that to be useful or workable. What I think we, we could start looking at, though, is what is it that has caused someone from uh, a Muslim to decide that ISIS's way is the right one? Part of it is this, this kind of radical democratization of interpretation that ISIS offers, saying that, okay, maybe you've come to Islam late in your life, or maybe you've come to just the practice or observance of Islam late in your life. Um, you don't need to feel, though, that you're forever handicapped by your late arrival. Instead, you, your arguments are right, irrespective of whether you've spent 30 years trying to cultivate them and, and, and perfect them. They would often say to me when I would ask, look, if, when I talk to ISIS supporters, I, I would say, well, look, you, you, you disagree with most of the intellectuals from your tradition, and certainly with most of the people who have spent decades studying these, these topics. And they would say, well, you, you've, you've invoked uh, authority from position. Sheikhs at Al-Azhar say, you've invoked the authority of time. These things, we've been told by our prophet, you must accept the correct judgment, even if it comes from a six-year-old boy. We are perhaps the equivalent of a six-year-old boy. We, we have the correct interpretation, even if we don't have the pedigree or the time in grade that would, 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 would make someone follow us. So I, I think they're, they're vulnerable to arguments that, that, uh, that empower them as newcomers to, to, to observance or to, to Islam uh, as a whole. Mm -hmm. That doesn't give us a lot of tools to, to offer them off-ramps. The reason I brought up quietist Salafism which, as you say, it, it differs from ISIS only in that it says that now is not the time for the caliphate. Someday, we'll do this, but you're, you're jumping the gun. They at least uh, share the view that, uh, that interpretation is something that an individual can do, that reading of scripture is not something that needs to be mediated by a three-decade of study sheikh. It's something that a newcomer to the faith can do. And you know, there is a scholarly tradition that one can defer to, but the very fact that you can read for yourself empowers you from day one. I think that's, that's going to be the only type of, of interpretive tradition that, that will be uh, appealing to the target audience of ISIS. But I mean, it's, it's not a complete democratization. Ibn Taymiyyah looms large, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah, uh, Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab. It's a, it's a particular school in which you can look, but there are limits there guiding the, the person uh, as the Islamic State expects him to look, basically. Yeah, but uh, you, you mentioned these scholars, Ibn Hazm as well, is, is, is very important in the thought of a couple of the people I was profiling. They're all, when you ask why are you following Ibn Taymiyyah or Ibn Hazm, they would always say, again, in a kind of self-flattering way, but this is how they say it, they had it right. They got these, these issues right. It's, it's not because they are uh, old. It's not because a few generations back people also liked them. It's because their arguments, uh, they hold. That's it. Rationality. One of the most or the hardest things to understand by um, Westerners about the Islamic State is the importance of the question of the end of times in their thought. Um, you describe it and you describe the, the signs of the last days as they understand them and where they fit into that narrative. And you, you state that knowledge of this can be helpful strategically about what they will do next and, and why they'll do that and not that. Why don't we understand that? Why can't we utilize that? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't want to overstate the usefulness of, of this. It, it, they're not fools in this sense, at least, in, in that they will show up where the, the scripture says they have to show up and then stand and be slaughtered. That's, that's not quite how they, they think of it. They, they've shown, certainly as they've lost territory in the last year, um, considerable interpretive uh, 
creativity hmm. when when uh, things haven't worked out the way that they've said that they would work out. Um, but I, I think that of this apocalyptic strain as, as being in some ways the ultimate um, source of incredulity from people who, who, like myself, are essentially secular people and have a lot of hard, a very hard time believing that someone could believe in literal terms that, that this is how uh, history will unfold and this is how the geography of con conquest will appear. So I have to say, when I first heard Islamic State supporters bring up the fact that first this will happen, and name identifiable cities or towns in the present day, and saying after that this, this will not happen before this, it's been said that this will happen first, I, I, I thought you, this must be a put on. You, you can't be serious that you think all of this is going to unfold exactly like this. And my incredulity w was, um, it was strained, to be honest, by how often I would hear it and with the, the seriousness that people would, would, would describe these, these, these prophecies to me. Every time I, I thought, you don't really believe this, I would, would observe uh, some tick in the conversation that would, would make me think, this is, he's speaking to me with complete honesty about his, his belief that the Islamic State has done the following things to fulfill prophecy and will do the following things next. Um, like I say, I, I don't think that's going to just open their playbook in a way that will allow us to destroy them. But at least having the ability to take seriously what they say, I think, can't hurt. I mean, growing up in Cairo, these kinds of books talking about the signs of the end of times were the bestsellers that uh, every kid had to read, basically, Muslim and non-Muslim alike. These were the most available books in the market. Let me move to the future as we come to an end of the conversation. Um, you, you state that his followers believe and this is what will mean that even if the physical caliphate will be destroyed, the Islamic State will live on. You suggest a ge new geographical uh, center for it. You take a trip to the Philippines, looking at possibilities there. Uh, Libya has been mentioned in the press quite a lot as a potential um, new base, new ground for the caliphate. How do you see the future of the Islamic State as Mosul is, is falling, uh, f uh, they're being defeated in Mosul, as their territory in the center of Iraq and Syria continues to shrink? Well, uh, the territory's shrinkage I take as a, as a given. That will happen um, at, at one speed or another over the next year. So we'll, we'll see Mosul fall completely, we'll see Raqqa fall as well. And I, I think there are a few stages that, that we should watch with interest. Um, the fall of Mosul, I think, will be different from the fall of Raqqa. Mosul, larger city, more important city in some ways, but Raqqa has been the capital, uh, de facto capital, of the foreign fighters who have gone there. And that is where the families have been raised of the foreign fighters. That's where these, these you know, tens of thousands of people have, have gone to create the utopia. So I... I think once that city falls, we'll see uh, an explosion of information about what the Islamic State has meant to these people. It'll be a kind of horrific experiment, natural experiment in social psychology, too, to see what does it mean for people who have devoted their lives, their given up everything, to bring their families to a prophetic utopian community. What does it mean for them to see those prophecies destroyed in front of their eyes? It'll be like the Branch Davidian compound, except on the scale of a whole city. That's, that's something that we have to look forward to within 2017, I think. Now, what does ISIS turn into after that? You mentioned the Philippines. I, I, I went there not with any expectation that the Philippines is, will be the new capital of the Islamic State or, or that there will be a tropical paradise version of Raqqa that, that people will go to, although some have already tried to do that. Um, but instead to see what is the template of the Islamic State when it tries to move into territory that it has designs on but no operational um, presence in. And I, I think Philippines is actually a pretty good case for that, where the Islamic State has found that, has looked for places like Libya, 
like Nigeria, like the southern Philippines, where there is a pre-existing political discontent that it can parasitically attach itself to and then offer to squabbling pre-existing jihadi groups there the ability to, to band together, to unify, and to accept the Islamic State as, as the banner under which they will actually claim territory. Unfortunately, the Philippines is not the only place where this could happen. We could see Yemen. We could see, could you go down the list of, of poorly governed and war-torn areas of the Muslim world? It's, it's a fairly long list, and the Islamic State's looked at pretty much all such places. But it, it doesn't have the same appeal. I mean, this is not my Egyptian centrality or Middle Eastern obsession, but it's one thing to have your caliphates in, in between the two grand capitals of the Umayyad and the Abbasids, and to have it in the Philippines, which is nowhere mentioned in the Quran, nowhere in Islamic history. It seems to me that um, you have to find somewhere in the Middle East in the heart of where it's all started and where it still matters. Yeah, I, I agree that the, the Mindanao Caliphate doesn't quite have the same ring to it as, <laughs> as, as the, the one in, in Raqqa or in Baghdad. Sinai, so, might we offer? Sinai would, would, would be, I, I think, marginally more attractive than the Mindanao <laughs> Caliphate. Although having been to Mindanao, it, it's a very nice place. And uh, in a way that sure. I, I'm afraid Sinai is, is, doesn't quite, uh, doesn't have malls or barbecue traditions that I think are as, as nice as the ones you find in the southern Philippines. I, I agree, though, that, that there has been an attraction to the ISIS caliphate, both because of the geography that it, that it commanded, like the, the specific places, Belad al-Sham, constantly mentioned by ISIS as, as being prophesied as the, the, the greatest of countries, the place where... where um, these apocalyptic showdowns will happen. So it, it matters a lot that it happened there in Syria rather than starting out in Mindanao. And the pathos of ISIS having to admit that at this point we are reduced to rump elements in obscure islands in Southeast Asia or in um, you know, unpleasant areas perhaps even of, of Libya or Yemen. I, I think that will severely erode the attraction of the group and, and I, I hope a lot of people who are perhaps on the fence about, about what they thought about going to the Raqqa Caliphate would not even consider instead moving off to Sabha or, or to Davao City. But beyond the Islamic State, Islamism by its very nature has been a constant search for um, the methodology that can bring the dream to life. Um, the failure of one methodology of one group giving birth often to the next one. Uh, in a sense, we f thought that the enemy that we were confronting before 9-11 was uh, local jihadism of the Jama'a Islamiyah type, only to wake up that day and discover the transformation from the local to the transnational. We continued to focus on Al-Qaeda thinking this is the face of the enemy only to discover the transformation from the transnational to the caliphate of the Islamic State. If you are to think about the future, if that model of holding territory and uh, proclaiming a caliphate is no longer the successful one, what is the future of Islamism? What's the new trend, the new kids on the block that will be there um, that we will confront in the next decade? Uh, so I, I don't see a movement that will succeed the Islamic State and try to outdo it in its, uh, in its persnicketiness about Islamic law or its intolerance. That's hard to do. It would be, very, it would be a very difficult um, margin to work on. <laughs> um, so instead, I think we would we, we want, want to look at how the Islamic State's successors might try to uh, rewind to strategies that were discarded by the Islamic State and perhaps claim that they were discarded prematurely. So Al-Qaeda, I think, would be the perfect example of this. Al-Qaeda has a moment right now when it can say, we uh, told you so. You build a caliphate prematurely, and it will be destroyed. It'll, it'll look good briefly, and then it will be destroyed, which is actually exactly what ISIS told al-Qaeda about September 11. Looked good for a few days, and then you lo lost your, your country. So 
I, I think that there, there's a moment now when Al-Qaeda can say, we're still around, we're still uh, a threat, and we'll try to perhaps um, revamp slightly our strategy, but it, it, it was discarded prematurely. So that, that's, that's perhaps one of the directions this is going. Well, this was a fascinating discussion, to say the least, and I think it gives the audience a glimpse into the, the depth of knowledge and of uh, information and discussion inside the book. One of the most striking things that you keep reminding yourself as you read the book is how you control yourself in those interviews. You're meeting these people that are uh, celebrating murder, slavery, all of these things. And yet throughout the book, you don't even lose the sense of humor. My favorite line is that the jihadi way of soccer was much more tolerant than the jihadi way of uh, fighting, basically. Um, just a remarkable achievement, the, the number of interviews, the, the depth of the, the knowledge of the Islamic tradition, um, and the travel all over the world uh, hearing that. So thank you for writing this excellent book. Thank you so much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.